Hey, I'm Andy White, and welcome to Masters of Medic, the show where we talk to the best of the best in the world of enterprise sales. In this, our first ever episode, we meet Kino Helmy, a seven times Chief Revenue Officer, PTC alumni, and overall legend in enterprise sales leadership. I can't wait for you to hear the episode, and if you like what you hear, then please don't forget to subscribe and to leave us a rating. All right. Hey, Kino. Welcome to Masters of Medic. It's absolutely tremendous to have you on the show. Um, and thank you so much for giving up your, your time. Um, perhaps if we could just start with you introducing yourself for the audience. Yeah. So I, the, the way I typically characterize myself is, uh, is an Egyptian redneck. Uh, my parents are from Egypt, but uh, I grew up in the, in the great state of Alabama where, you know, our core competencies revolve around inbreeding and um, <laughs> advanced mobile home assembly and teenage pregnancies. These are the things that we're they're quite famous for. So I had a very good upbringing in Alabama. I um, did not know growing up that I was a sales guy. I didn't know I was meant to be a sales guy. I kind of stumbled through it through some uh, happenstance. You know, I, I started off my career as, um, as an economics professor, but... Right. I was never really committed to the cause. It was just something that I was meandering through. And after I got out of a graduate school, I was teaching at night and I couldn't decide if I wanted to commit to getting my PhD and doing it forever or to go back into the private sector where I'd done a brief stint. So then my parents, being the good upstanding Egyptians that they are, every Egyptian does when they don't like the path that they're son's life is taking, they yell and scream and shame and humiliate until they, they get their way. It's actually very effective. They would have made very good PTC salesmen, <laughs> my parents. So um, I eventually took a job selling office equipment for one reason and one reason alone, just so my parents would stop screaming at me. I didn't know what salespeople did. I didn't know I was any good at it. I didn't know I was born to do it, but ended up being the one of the best decisions that I've made. And I'd love to tell you it was a very well-informed, thought-through plan, but the truth of the matter is I stumbled into it, and my impetus was just to stop the yelling and the screaming from my parents. So I had a good run at uh, a company called Lanier Worldwide, um, which is a famous hunting ground for what would later become my first software sales job which is a company called Parametric Technology, PTC. So they recruited me. I'm convinced, knowing what I know now, that if I would have known how good of an opportunity it was, I would have screwed it up for sure. Uh, but they had been hunting for a rep in Alabama for a long, long time, and they hadn't found anybody that could handle the culture until they stumbled upon me, almost out of desperation. So when I got to PTC in the mid-90s, it was the second fastest growing company in the history of the NASDAQ and the most profitable software company in the world. And anybody that knew anything about the space would tell you that the reason the company was able to post such remarkable results was because they were vigilant about two things, the hiring profile and the sales methodology, where Medic was first born out of PTC. So I had, a, I had three of the best and the worst years of my life. I oh. made more money than I ever made in my life. 
I consider the things that I learned at PTC uh, to be my Harvard MBA and probably I'm guessing 40 out of the 60 sales deliverables in my sales curriculum were either born or modified out of PTC. So it was very influential on my worldview, my outlook, and how I run my business today. And for that, I'm grateful. The part that I didn't enjoy was the yelling and the screaming and the boneheaded management intimidation tactics that I never really could understood. I never understood. But um, uh, overall, I wouldn't trade my experience there for anything in the world. Uh, And since my time there, virtually every company that I've gone to work for has some kind of linkage to PTC. And one of the crown jewels and one of the cornerstones in my sales methodology, which I can take no credit for whatsoever, is is Medic. So there's a little bit of a background on me. I I love that. Thank you. That's, That's fascinating. It's so funny to hear. This, you hear this time and time again around PTC. You know, you only have to look at, you know, the the who's who in the sales leadership world today and, you know, some of the best performing companies out there. And you find some linkage, some heritage to PTC, you know, with yourself and with your peers. It's, it, it's perhaps unlike any other, certainly in our industry, any other organization I can think of, except for ones that, you know, have, have had PTC people since, you know, like Blade Logic or something like that. So that is fascinating. And, and do you think, do you think it's, um, do you think it's related to um, the approach that they took? You mentioned those two things there around the hiring and, and the focus on, on the sales methodologies. Do you think that if you would have taken the, the PTC element out and put in a, you know, taken those elements into a different technology, a different type of software or something like that, but with the same people in the same process, then you would have had the same nucleus to go on today? Uh, I'm certain of it. And there was broad and widespread consensus outside of PTC from the market. I'm sure that you could even find some articles that were written as such that the market believed that you could take any one of our competitors' technologies and put it in the hands of the PTC Salesforce, and the results would have been identical. It was a good technology, pro-engineer. It was not the reason that we won deals. Unequivocally, we won deals because we had a superior Salesforce, and we had a superior go-to-market methodology relative to any of our competitors in the, at the time. Um, matter of fact, I, I would go on to say that it impacted the thinking of many technology companies. Um, If you look at the way that the industry has evolved, and particularly during my time at PTC, if you looked at every one of our competitors, they were virtually identical in their hiring profile. They were hiring engineers. Uh, ProEngineer was an engineering automation technology. So everybody that worked for all of our competitors had some kind of an engineering background. At PTC, uh, it was damn near impossible to get on in the sales force if you came from an engineering uh, background. They wanted red meat eating, alpha male, uber competitive, business centric prima donnas that could articulate business value. Uh, Matter of fact, it was core to our strategy at the time was to subjugate engineering. We, We saw them as the bottleneck because they had a vested interest to maintain the status quo. We were interested in getting to people that cared about the business outcomes and the business results. 
So instead of talking about flux capacitors and feeds and speeds and fillet rounding, which we were all well-versed in because we did have to talk to the engineers at some point, we were speaking to C-level executives about what would it mean to their business to be able to bring a product to market a year faster than they could otherwise in the absence of some kind of automation. And to be able to articulate what that meant to the um, to the PNL um, was how we would would go about trying to sell the software. Since that time, the vast majority of technology companies have shifted to that kind of a mindset. Business centric people, not technical, not technical people. So PTC impacted many many technology companies since that time. Not too long after us, there was a company you may have heard of called EMC that was selling storage, identical approach. Same kind of hiring profile, get away from the infrastructure guys, go talk to the business and speak in terms of ROI, not in terms of features and functions. Yeah, that's interesting. And how much do you think, you mentioned that hiring profile, how much, how important was the 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 kind of personality of, of the person you were hiring versus the what they were learning and the the kind of approach that they were being instructed to take? Well, there were I'd say um, you know if you think about the Myers Briggs and and all the personality tests, there was an excessive amount of commonality amongst the PTC sales force. Some some different personalities for sure. All of us, all twelve hundred of us, looked alike, sounded alike. Um, you know, except for me, they, they needed an Egyptian to round out the uh, <laughs> diversity and the affirmative action quotas. But um, by and large, we behaved very, very similarly. Very type A, very aggressive, very outgoing, fearless, very competitive. It was um, a lot of, lot of testosterone back then. At the, I don't believe I will ever in my career ever again be surrounded by the kind of talent that uh, I was surrounded by at PTC. Wow, that's something. And it, for that depth of people as well, 1,200 people in the, in the sales team. Is that right? It's 1,200. That's wow. And, and what part, because there's, you know, there's, it's, it's quite well documented that PTC obviously went on this meteoric rise of 40-something quotas without missing the target and, and all this sort of stuff. Which, whereabouts did your time at PTC fit into, into that uh, period of time? Yeah with what you're talking about I was there from 95 to 98 uh, in in and before then and after them I think in that six-year period we went to a zero to a billion dollars in revenue now it's a little bit misleading if you're looking at it through the lens of today's software companies which are all SaaS which generally looks like at a three to five year amortization we were selling perpetual licenses meaning we were getting all the cash up front so it wouldn't be zero to a billion if we were SaaS. It would be more like zero to 350 million in six years, which is still still fairly remarkable. That is that is indeed that is indeed. And how did um how did the organization um in that regard with the perpetual licenses so much focus and so much focus of of you know of medic is around it and 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 from what you said about the business approach is around that that business case selling. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting to me to think about how you worked with things like metrics in an organization where really when you've you've done the deal once, you haven't got the renewal process to go back. There's almost sort of that less, not, not quite maybe as engaged 
as uh, you remain as engaged as, as software companies do today. Did, mm -hmm. did, did, it note, did you notice any difference or would you say that it was still as important to get close? Yeah, I think it was still very important to get close. Um, by and large, we did not sell the multi-million dollar deal from the get-go. Uh, generally, you had a small division of a much larger company that you would get in to uh, demonstrate the value, almost kind of like what we would call today a paid pilot. So the first, you didn't make your money on the first deal. You made your money on the second deal once you had been established, once it was a known quantity, once they saw firsthand the business value. And that's what set the table for the million dollar deal later on. So if you looked at all the Hallmark deals that we did back in the day, Boeing, uh, Caterpillar, Case, all of those, they all started off with little $50,000, $100,000 opportunities that then proliferated and consumed the entire organization. I see. It's fascinating how, you know, even though the, the business models were so different, that really the approach and the, you know, the, what made you successful doesn't really change. I have not seen any change in the approach other than one thing that PTC was kind of famous for, uh, you know, there was always a question, did our financial success come about as a result of our sales tactics or despite our sales tactics? <laughs> uh, I'm convinced it was because of our sales tactics. But one of the things that PTC was notorious for back in the day that is not simply just not tolerated in this day and age was going over people's heads. We were we were famous for that. If we didn't get the answer that we liked, you know, the um, the knee-jerk reaction was just to go to the boss's boss and say, you're working with a bunch of idiots. This is what I showed them. And they don't want to take it forward. And that probably worked one out of 20 times. Um, that would work one out of that zero out of 100 times in this day and age. Yeah. And um, I think buying software has also shifted over the over the course of time to be much more um, consensus centric, right? You, you, it's very rare that the decision now lies with just one person. And even if it does, that that person is comfortable buying it and shoving it down the throat of the organization. That's the easiest way to, to, um, to blame a failed deployment. Hey, you shoved this thing down my throat. It didn't have my buy-in from the get-go. So, even amongst my former PTC contemporaries, partially because we've aged, we've had kids, we're a little bit more mellow than we were back in the day. Uh, there's been some of that that's contributed to the dynamic, and it's just been the way that buyers buying software has evolved. That doesn't give you the luxury of being an asshole, you know, right. said uh, very directly. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, I, I also think a, a part of that could also be just technology today has so many more stakeholders, whether it be integrations that have to take place or security and infrastructure and all of those things like, that, that, yeah, that tend to take up more, as you say, more, more consensus, more stakeholders. And it, it makes it a, yeah, makes it a, um, uh, a decision by consensus, which is, which is interesting. And on, on that note, actually, I'm fascinated to hear how you, how you yourself will then take that kind of understanding that there is generally more people involved in the decision process and how mm -hmm. you apply that a modern medic or medpick to, to that, especially, I guess, around the stakeholders of champions, economic buyer and that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I might be radical in what um, I'm about to share with you, uh, but this is what I believe. There, there, there may be other um, <clears throat> proponents of medic or medpick that see it differently. 
but I've oftentimes heard medic referred to as a sales methodology. Um, I have never regarded it as a sales methodology. I still do not consider it a sales methodology. I don't consider it a process. I consider it a correction mechanism. So we start with a couple of ancillary things that complement medic, that enable medic to be much more effective. But using medic in of itself without, without some supplemental material limits its effectiveness. So let me be a little bit more direct and clear what I mean by that. We begin in my sales curriculum and my sales methodology with an established and documented enterprise sales process. These are the sequence of events that you should undertake to maximize the likelihood of a favorable outcome. Now, invariably, it never goes that way. That is when medic is introduced. When the wheels come off the wagon, when it hasn't followed the optimal sequence of events that we've prescribed that our sales teams should be going after, what do we do to correct? Um, I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I used to be an economics professor. Uh, are you familiar with um, Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations? I am not. Uh, I, I know the book, but I haven't read it. Well, he was the first economist, you know, in the 1800s to talk about this notion of the of the um, of the invisible hand that when a market is out of equilibrium, it's the natural forces that bring that market back into equilibrium. So when there's temporary gluts or shortages, prices adjust, and invariably we get back to the place where everybody that wants to buy an apple can buy an apple and everybody that wants to sell an apple can sell an apple for that market clearing price. So when a market is in equilibrium, it's the invisible hand that brings it back into equilibrium. And that to me is what medic does for a deal. So we start with an enterprise sales process, and then we use medic to deconstruct the anatomy of the deal and to identify where we have shortcomings in our, our sales strategy. But I don't regard it as a sales methodology. So in order to really maximize the value and the, and the efficacy of what medic does, you need two additional things, in, in my opinion. A, you need an enterprise sales process. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that you need is an effective mapping of the power base, okay? Now, one thing that PPC did not invent, but they emphasized and they required all of us to read, and I require every one of my team members to read, is a, a, a book by James Holden called Power Base Selling. Uh -huh. um, I consider it the most important book ever written about complex enterprise sales. So if you have an enterprise sales process, we can then map the org chart, that's the names and the titles of everybody within the organization, but then give them a power-based selling designation, enemy, box, champion, prospective champion, coach, technical buyer, unknown. If we put a designation by all of those, and then we circle within that org chart, the three, four, five people that are really material to the decision that really get a vote on whether or not this thing goes forward, then we layer medic on top of that. That's the trifecta. Those are the three things that we need to be able to affect the outcome or to, to assess very early on in, this, in the deal that the likelihood of a good outcome is very low, in which case we take our ball and go home, which is one of the most difficult things for 
a aggressive, competitive salesperson to do. Um, have you ever heard about the movie Rudy? No. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's one of these feel good movies. It's famous in the United States about this kid that walked on and played football at Notre Dame. He should have never had a chance. He was, you know, a midget. He was weak. He was slow. Every possible thing going against him. But he somehow made the team and, you know, he got to play two two plays in his entire career when Notre Dame was winning by 700 points and the game mattered nothing at all. But I call that Rudy syndrome. And this is a, a sales guy that that wants to win the deal that he has no chance at winning. That is a terrible way to run your business. Yes, you will win that deal one out of a thousand times, but you will have been fired 999 times because you went long time chasing deals that you had very low chance of winning, but you will have that one story um, that you can tell. We, we are not looking for Rudy when, when I'm telling enabling my sales team and I'm taking them through these deliverables. We are not looking for Rudy. We're looking for a guy that's got all of those elements, aggressive, competitive, all that stuff, but also has the EQ and the ability to discern and assess that the likelihood of winning is very low and to be able to walk away from the, from the deal. So uh, back to the hiring profile, right? So I talked to you about the three things, the process, the power map, and medic. You also need to combine that with a person that's very difficult to find that has all of those elements. Right. Oh, wow. I love that, Rudy. I'm going to have to watch this Rudy film because I, I, yeah. I like the story You're as well. great about it. It's a wonderful movie. It's just <laughs> not a great way to run a business. I, I, there's a saying that I like that's a bit like that, which is um, it says we all know a hundred year old smoker but it doesn't mean that we should, you know, we should all be smoking. And it's kind of that same thing. We, we, you know, you all, is it, you know, we've all won um, a blind RFP before we've all won a deal with no champion or no engagement with the economic buyer. It doesn't mean that you can, or you should do that in, in future. Right. Although I would take exception to that. Uh, you may have won a deal where you didn't get the economic buyer. No deal has ever been won without by a champion. Not that I've ever seen in my entire career. It is single handedly unequivocally, the most important element of medic without question. So much so that I don't even, when I'm giving my medic presentation, I dedicate an entirely separate module to the champion because it is by far the most important aspect of an enterprise sales process. Brilliant. Not even uh, close. That's interesting because I, 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 I tend to agree with you. Um, for, for me, I, I get stuck and I'd love to hear your opinion on this because I, I, I agree with the, the, the sentiment and what you've said there perfectly. I agree 100%. But um, for me, the pain, it, you, you can win a deal, I think, without a champion. You can be an order taker almost, you know, and they, they'll just buy because the pain is so big. But without the pain, no one will buy anything. There's, there's not a, you know, there, there'd have to be, I'd have to make a mistake to, to buy mm -hmm. without pain. So for me, I always struggle because I agree with you to put champion as that number one, but I'm like, well, I can, I can, you can, you know, especially with, you know, if you, if you think about the definition of a champion, if you're really strict on the definition of a champion, you can still, you can still get a deal done without a, a fully qualified champion. Whereas with no pain, no deal for me. Yeah. I, I couldn't disagree with that 
Well, I couldn't disagree with that more. But perhaps what um, what might explain our disagreement is we have to delineate between a deal and mm-hmm. a follow-on order. Those are two completely different things. Two completely different things. When I say a deal, I mean that the technology is not installed anywhere in the organization. It's a new deal. Those are the hardest things in the world to get. Every time one of those happens, it's a small miracle. Now, I have deconstructed virtually every deal I've ever been a part of, both as an individual contributor and a manager. And while I have seen many, many deals that came through without ticking all of the medic pillars, I have won deals that I've ticked every one of the medic, uh, none of the medic pillars with the exception of the champion. And that is the reason with a champion, everything is possible. And of all the elements in my sales curriculum, uh, the one that I'm, I'm the only one that I'm vigilant of to an incredible degree is in the definition of a champion. So People in the industry, even some of my former PTC contemporaries, they use that term, in my opinion, far too liberally. Mm-hmm. Um, you earn the right to be called a champion once you have met four distinct criteria. Until all four of these have occurred, all you can call them is a prospective champion. That's the person I'm going to build my champion strategy around. But until he, all four of these things have been validated and verified, that's all the person can be as a prospective champion. They must be in the power base. They must have a selfish vested interest in backing you and you alone. They must have access to the economic buyer and they must have a willingness to take you there. Until all four of those things have been established, the only thing you can call that person is a prospective champion. Now, of those four, there's one that allows you to assume the other three. So it is the shortest path to validating that you have a champion is simply by his or her willingness to take you to the economic buyer. Obviously, they have access if they do. Obviously, they're backing you and you alone. And obviously, they have a selfish vested interest in backing you and you alone. So if you want a shortcut to the right to designate somebody as a champion, and that is oftentimes where the deal is won or lost. Will they take you to the man? If they take you to the man, your chances of getting the deal go up by an order of magnitude. It's far more important that they take you to the economic buyer than you getting there yourself. When you get to the economic buyer of your own volition without a champion, he or she invariably says the same thing. I think that's fantastic. That sounds like a great idea, but I need Max to tell me that. Max is my boy. Max is the guy that's going to be responsible for screwing it in. Max is the person I'm going to hold accountable for the success or failure of the product. So I am not in, in, in my definition of what I describe a deal as not a follow on order. I'm not aware of one single deal in the history of my career that has ever occurred without a champion. I love that. That's brilliant. And I, I really like your focus on the economic buyer there because I think it's, so, you know, it, tying the two together because I just think it's so, as you say, there's some, um, there's a, there's a software company called I see it and they, they create a, a Salesforce plugin for medic. So it mm-hmm. kind of brings medic into, into Salesforce. And they recently put out some data where they, they saw that, and I can't remember exactly what the figures were, but it was something like 83% of deals that closed on forecast had 
direct engagement with the economic buyer, whereas 80-something percent of deals that slipped had no engagement with the economic buyer. And it's like 80, you know, it's like an 80-20 rule for both. And, you know, I think you're, you're spot on there. What question I have for you, and this is, this is I think, a really valuable one, is um, sometimes, especially early in deals, and you mentioned it yourself, how valuable it is to get to the economic buyers as soon as possible, as you said, with the sponsorship of your champion. What, what would you say to salespeople when they inevitably come up against that situation where the champion says, look, you know, leave it with me. I'll, I'll talk to them. Or at this point, you don't need to meet them. How do you, how do you um, build your champion into understanding the, the mutual win of, of them taking you there? Yeah. So that is a fantastic question. And I actually have a few painful stories that we don't have time to go through <laughs> where that very dynamic occurred. That's one of the worst champions that you can have is an overconfident champion, right? Mm-hmm. So what I've done historically when we have a situation like this is just pull them off to the side and explain to them that we've seen this many, many times, that we are by far the subject matter expert when it comes to this, that there is likely questions that are going to arise that he or she will not be able to answer because of they don't have the level of familiarity with our technology and the business case that we do. And that if he or she truly wants this deal to happen, what by what gives us the best chance of a good outcome is by them putting us in, in front. Um, there's also a situation, have you, are you familiar with the term the crucible? No. Okay. So, <laughs> There is the way that a company tells you the two D's in medic, the decision-making process and the decision-making criteria. Mm -hmm. There is what they will articulate to you are those two things. And then there's the real way that the deal actually ends up happening, which is usually in one critical meeting that's called the crucible where the company is going to decide. Now in the crucible, there's only of the 11 people, there's only two that matter. And very oftentimes, one of them is representing the bad guys and one of them is representing us, right? It's classic good versus evil. Every one of your competitors has a champion. And if your champion is stronger than your competitor's champion, you win. And if your competitor's champion is stronger than your champion, then you will lose. So to be able to arm and educate your champion going into the crucible is oftentimes the the difference between success and failure, helping them to anticipate objections, helping them to anticipate what cornerstones the competition is going to hang their hat on and to be able to diffuse that argument, having a business case to accompany the technical um, selection so that when the, somebody on the committee that doesn't give a shit which way they go, how is this thing going to pay for itself in what period of time to be able to articulate what the business outcome is likely to be. Um, so having that conversation early with your champion and explain to them, you don't buy software for a living. That's all I do is help people buy software for a living. And if they're the right kind of champion, this should be a very easy conversation. If they push back, you either don't have the champion or you have the wrong kind of champion. And that's not to say you won't get the deal. I have seen that work. I have seen guys that were smart enough to pull it off. All it means is, You can't forecast the deal with the same level of accuracy that you could if he or she was willing to put you directly in front 
of the economic buyer. But these are part of the tough decisions that we have to make as sales professionals. What are you going to do? Walk away from the deal at that point? It's too late. You're heavily invested. This is your only chance. So you do the best that you can with the cards that are played you. But you, I, I go to great lengths to discourage people from taking the law into their own hands. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You, um, when we were when we were setting this up, and we were very kindly introduced by our friend Dick Dunkel, um, you mentioned to me, and if it's not too late, don't forget to include include the P in in Medic the book. Um, for obviously in, in your case for paper process, be interested to know because obviously at the PTC days it was Medic with one C, and then you know through time they added on the second C, usually for competitor, and then the paper process came in. Where did where did you pick up the paper process? At which which company and, and can you remember much about that? Yeah, I think it really started manifesting itself uh, into my sales motion about the same time that companies were switching from perpetual licenses to SaaS licenses. And I don't have an explanation for why buying software was less sophisticated back then than it is today. But I had never heard of a requisition. I had never heard of getting set up in the SAP system as an approved <laughs> vendor. I had never heard of InfoSec. There, there was no, there wasn't much security back then. So the paperwork has become more cumbersome and more complicated as the industry and technology itself has evolved. So I think it was probably, I'm guessing, 2006 when I, 2008 rather. When I started, um, we started going almost exclusively to SaaS and perpetual licenses were uh, dying very, very quickly. Uh, that is when I started emphasizing the P and the paperwork process because there was a number of paperwork related deliverables that had never been required until then. Up until that, back then in the day, all we needed was a license agreement and a PO. We didn't even need the PO um, every single time. So. Interesting. And, and as you've as you've evolved your career and you obviously left PTC and moved to other, other companies, has there been times, I, I imagine there's been some places that I can see on your CV that we are well known and documented as, as other medical organizations, but has there been some times where you've joined an organization either as a, a, as a sales leader or not, where they've not had medic and have you had to kind of implement it yourself? And, and how did you go about that if you did? Every single time. Yeah. Every time. Wow. Since I have become a CRO, uh, I have had to implement it every single time. Matter of fact, I've had to implement almost the entire sales infrastructure. Most Almost everything is absent when I join. No sophisticated forecast methodology, um, no appropriate categorization of deal stages and, and being very specific on the criteria, no business case tool, no account plan template, uh, you know, no when and when not to POC, no vernacular around the key buying influences and what a difference is between a coach and a champion, no books having been read. I mean, almost every organization I've inherited has been extremely deficient as far as sales infrastructure is, con is convinced, which is why I go back to saying I will never be surrounded by that level of talent. We didn't have a frame of reference at PTC. We didn't know what great was or bad was. All we knew is this is what we had to do to get our job done. This is what our team was, management team was requiring of us. It is only when I started going to other software companies that I really recognized the value in the extraordinary training 
that I got at PTC, which is unparalleled to this day. So things that PTC guys take for granted, uh, they realize when they join an organization that doesn't have that level of sophistication, how invaluable our uh, our time was there. Interesting. This is a huge question for me. This this one, the answer to this will really fascinate me. You mentioned there a number of questions or or um, scenarios of which, when you've joined as a CRO to a, an organization, a sales team you've inherited of of things you've had to implement. You know they didn't have. You know you mentioned a number of things there. What I'd be fascinated to know is how how um, how different do you implement those things based on the organization? Are they? I guess a different way of saying it is. If I was to analyze the last five roles you've had, you've, companies you've been a CRO at, how similar would the sales process be? How similar would the account plans be, the qualification, the, the forecasting methodology? Do you think you have um, a kind of a playbook that you take or how, how much do you adjust it for the yeah. different company? So the answer to your question is almost identical, probably with 10% variability. And that 10% is nuanced to the technology and how that technology is licensed and how it's monetized. But uh, the only the only element of the 60 different deliverables in my sales curriculum that tends to vary greatly from company to company is the discovery and the qualification guide. That's about it. Nice. Um, you know, the questions that you ask to cost justify a marketing automation platform or nothing like this to... Uh, a pricing optimization software or a digital virtual assistant like what we sell today. But the business case tool is identical. The enterprise sales process is identical. Uh, everything is virtually identical. And that is probably more of a function of the companies that I've chosen to go work for than anything else. The PTC sales methodology is ideally suited to large, complex enterprise sales. So mm-hmm. if it's a transactional business or it's a heavy inside sales function, my sales curriculum, my approach, and the things that excite me about the job are not ideally suited to something like that. You can certainly still implement medic and the enterprise sales processes and inside sales-driven organization but the real value in my sales curriculum is exacerbated and bolstered by large, complex enterprise transactions, yeah. which is what I get towards. Right, and I think if you if you look at the you know the the medic unicorns as I like to call them, you know that there, there's a real similarity there, as you say, not necessarily by the what the solution does, but by the kind of implementation and buying process that that, that leads up to it being in, in implemented, and I think. Maybe- factor is complexity. If yes. it's complex, the PTC sales methodology is ideally suited. If it's homogenous or transactional, you need a different sales approach and a different sales methodology and a different type of sales guy. You need smilers and dialers, yeah. not sophisticated, politically minded, insightful, high EQ, overpaid prima donnas. <laughs> overpaid that's it always fascinates me and you'll know from your academic background just you know the average sort of you know elite salesperson's earning potential is is vastly more than some of the most important you know um uh complex roles in in the workplace so that that always mm-hmm. fascinates me one other thing one way to look at it the other way to look at it is is it's a fraction of the value that they drive on behalf 
of the company. Uh, it's a very short conversation between me and a prospective CEO that I might be going to work for. If they say anything that remotely resembles that salespeople are overpaid or why do we have to pay so much to get these guys, it's a very short conversation. There's fights that I want to fight. The enemy is outside of the four walls and there are fights that I have no interest in fighting. So if that's your mindset, it's just immediately uh, a qualify out type of a situation. I never go work for a CEO that used to be a CFO. I, I never do. <laughs> True. I like that way of looking at it. I like that. And, and, and I, I can guarantee you, if I ask you this question, a few people will spring to mind, which is that the, the CFOs you have enjoyed working for as a CRO, I bet you, you know, I bet those are the most commercially minded uh, CFOs you'll find in terms of uh, growth mindset. Yeah. There's only two types of CFOs. There's only two shitty ones and really good ones. There's You're, you're never going to find one that is kind of on the bubble. They really understand ROI. They really understand the value that an enterprise salesperson brings to the table. And they've ideally experienced it firsthand working at a PTC-like company, in, in which case they're constantly looking for a way to add oxygen to the machine, justifying an additional headcount. That's a great CFO. And I've already talked about what a bad CFO looks yeah. like and uh, one that I just have no interest in in working with. Yeah, that, no, that's interesting. What, one other thing, just don't get, taking it back to something we were talking about a moment ago, um, was this, uh, when I look at the landscape of medic companies, there's, de- as we said, there's definitely a prolification of companies that have a complex sales process, but the ones that, the, the ones that are most famous, perhaps the ones where they've been innovating, you know, they've been doing something that when it was being sold, there was no budget for the item. It was brand new technology. It was not replacing an email service provider or some analytics tool. It was brand new. Do you think that, um, medic particularly suits those sales processes? Uh, I don't think, I don't think so personally. Um, what I use to kind of instantiate and fuel that kind of a sales motion is another fairly popular book that, that I'm sure you've heard of called the challenger sale, right? (laughs) So that is, there you go. So that that is how you create something from nothing. That is how you evangelize. That is how you educate the market on a better mousetrap, not medic. Again, this goes back to what medic is, I believe, intended to do, to correct, not to instantiate. It was intended to correct. In order to instantiate, you need a completely different lens. You need to be able to articulate why the way people are doing things right now is broken, um, what the implications of the broken process, what is the opportunity cost, and what the better way is, and what the business improvement looks like. Um, that is all challenger sale oriented, in my opinion, nothing to do with Medic. Yes. Medic I, is I, about I opera- operationalization. Challenger is about instantiation. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why Medic has you know, stood the test of time. I think 25 years or something now, it's, it's bit, you know, and it, it seems to have had a resurgence lately. And I think that's it. It's just because it's so agnostic and universal that it works with Challenger. It works with, you know, as you say, your, your sales process, any kind of different thing can overlay over the top of it. You know, you've got the guys at Force Management that, that you know, put some messaging around it and all that sort of stuff. It works so, so well. 
I have one last question that I've been really looking forward to asking you about, which was that um, your uh, head of sales ops at uh, your current your current company, Espressive, is Stephen LeBron, which we already, is, is, is a great name. Um, I noticed you guys had worked together before, and it, it just seemed too much of a coincidence you both joined Espressive at the same time. Is that one of those like sort of magic, sort of made in heaven things that you guys just, uh, you know, you work together perfectly well? Is he your kind of, I always think of it as like a, a right-hand man, uh, a, a second lieutenant, a goose and maverick kind of relationship? Uh, yeah, unequivocally. Um, uh, I, the way you characterize it is is almost aspirational. That's not the way that I see it. I don't understand how any head of sales could be effective without an effective head of sales ops at his uh, at his side. I mean, I'm sure that, that it's possible. I, I, I couldn't. Uh, and matter of fact, I, I almost had to walk away from this opportunity uh, because. Uh, our CEO didn't really understand why we would need to spend, you know, three hundred thousand dollars on a, a guy. And you know, my my response to that is, I simply can't do the job that you want me to do effectively without the data and the insights that he provides me to course correct um, our, uh, our our the scaling of our business. Maybe you can get away with it when you're a five person sales organization. But you can simply cannot. It's impossible to be truly effective at scale without uh, a sales ops leader that is an expert at Salesforce or whatever your CRM tool that can extract the data, that can identify stale opportunities that are misleading what the overall qualified pipeline looks like, that can hold the reps accountable for putting the deals in the wrong stages. I mean, we run a data-driven business. You often hear people talking about the art and the science of sales. While I certainly believe in that, I go to great lengths to minimize the art and to maximize the science. And what's foundational to that is somebody that can understand the data and the nuances of our go-to-market approach, medic, what a true champion is, our business case tool, and can help enforce because I'm out selling, right? I'm out recruiting. I'm distracted by a whole lot of things. I've got board meetings. I need a watchdog that is vigilant about the minutia that I don't have the bandwidth nor the desire to uh, to micromanage that al- allows me to stand behind a forecast, a macro forecast with confidence, not just what we're going to do in business for the quarter, but what the pipeline looks like three quarters out and why I can project what our business is going to look like over the course of the year. I can't do that without a head of sales ops. Right. And my guy is probably the best, the best I've ever worked. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, that's so true. That's so true. And I, I love to hear and I, I can, I can totally relate. And I think you're absolutely spot on there. Um, Kino, thank you so, so much. This has been absolutely incredible. I, I, I feel like I've learned a ton and that's kind of, you know, the, the sort of selfish part of me of, of doing all of this is just that, you know, I get to meet and, and talk to and learn from great, great sales leaders like yourself. So thank you so much for this. Sure. I think it's been incredible. It was fun, Andy. It was great to meet you. And uh, it's an open door. If you ever want to chat again. Hey, so that wraps up our first ever episode of Masters of Medic. Thank you so much for listening. And if you liked what you heard, then please leave a rating and don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>